Alright, book of Matthew tonight. The book of Matthew. I got so inspired from uh, the study that we did in Matthew chapter 4 with Jesus in the wilderness that I was like, you know what? I think there's a lot more uh, things like that to be found in the book of Matthew. And so I've, it just made me really anxious to preach through this book. And so we're going to go ahead and start a series through the book of Matthew. And so... Uh, something that you will uh, often hear in the dispensational world that is actually true is that the Gospel of Matthew was written and is kind of geared towards the Jews. And I do believe that. I believe it's a very true statement. But however, like the Calvinists, dispensationalists, they often do the same thing where they will make a true statement and then jump to a false conclusion with that uh, based on that truth. And so without a doubt, we're going to see many things in this book that clearly show it was geared towards the Jews. And there's a lot of things even here in this first chapter that I think are relevant that if we keep in mind that this is something that was written to Jews in that first century. And remember, Jews in the first century before Christ came, that was the true religion. Now, they weren't following it very good. When Jesus came on the scene... They were doing a really bad job, but they were the people of God. They had the oracles of God. They had the Word of God. They had the temple. They had all these things. And so they were, they were the people of God. And so the thing is, when Jesus came as a nation, they rejected Him. But it didn't stop the apostles from trying to get them to repent of their rejection of Christ and to believe on Him and trust in Him as their Messiah. And so, when we read the book of Matthew, it's very obvious that the intended audience is Jews because of the specific things it's trying to help them understand. Now, what's probably the most popular gospel that we use today when trying to get people saved? It's John, for sure. And John is definitely one that, you know, that's, it is. It's geared towards a more broader audience, and uh, without a doubt, and so it speaks of things differently than. And you would you would approach the gospel differently with a Gentile than you would a Jew, just like you would approach the gospel differently uh, with a Muslim than you would a Catholic. And so it's uh, so understand. We're not seeing two different gospels here, but we're seeing just kind of uh, they're approaching it at a different angle you could say. And so when we look at the angle, it's very obvious who they are trying to reach. And so when we're talking to uh, you know, most Christian groups out there, we don't spend a lot of time trying to convince people the deity of Christ because most Christian groups understand that. The problem is most of them are trusting in their works. If we're talking to a Muslim, we've got to spend a lot of time talking about the deity of Christ because they believe he was a good man and a prophet, but they don't believe he was God. So, if, if, you, if, uh, if I was to write a gospel track and it was, you saw a, a ton of emphasis on the deity of Christ, you could assume he's probably gearing this towards Muslims or people like that. So, uh, anyway, a lot of it's just kind of common sense. But notice what it says in verse 1. It says, "...the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David..." the son of Abraham. And so this genealogy Matthew's about to give is important for the Jews because Matthew is letting the Jews know that Jesus is in fact the one that fulfillment of the prophecies and promises are going to be through when it comes to their nation. He's the son of David. There were promises and prophecies uh, geared towards David and promises and prophecies geared towards 
Abraham, and Jesus is where these things are going to find their fulfillment. And I titled this particular chapter, and we're going to see this phrase a lot in the book of Matthew. And I, I believe that uh, you know through this study, we're going to get a much deeper understanding of this phrase, and that is that it might be fulfilled. I want us, I, I, hope, I hope by the end of this series, we will have a full grasp on what that means. But even after today, I hope to give you a deeper understanding of the significance of that phrase that it might be fulfilled. That's a very important phrase that we are going to see a lot. And what we need to understand when it comes to the promises, when it comes to prophecy, they are fulfilled through Christ. People have got to get a hold of that. The dispensationalists are still thinking things have to be fulfilled through an ethnicity, through the Jews. No, things are fulfilled through Christ. And even when it comes to our salvation, our salvation was fulfilled through Christ. Why? Because He lived a sinless life. Because He died on the cross. Because He paid for our sins. Because He rose again from the dead. Because He did all these things, we are able to be saved. Because of what He did. He fulfilled the works of the law. He fulfilled all the things that we could not fulfill. There are some things that must be fulfilled for one to go to heaven. But those things are fulfilled through Christ, not through us. And so, uh, I think we all understand that here, but sadly, many Christians are missing this point today, and I think it's a shame. So, uh, when it comes to this genealogy, it's letting them know that Jesus was in fact the Messiah. Here's His lineage. Here's His genealogy. He was connected to Abraham. He was connected to David. And they knew the Messiah would be a descendant of Abraham and of David. Because in Genesis 12, 7, it says, The Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. God has to give the land to the seed. And it, that will be fulfilled not through an, an unbelieving group of Jews, but through Jesus Christ. He is the seed that the promises were made to. Isaiah 9, 6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David." and upon His kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So notice there's this Messianic prophecy and there's a reference to the throne of David. Jeremiah 23.5 says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch with a capital B. And a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days, Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely, and this is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. Man, I love, I love that phrase, the Lord our righteousness. That's where our righteousness is. And so, notice that it was going to be a branch that was going to be from David. So, the Jews would have understood this prophecy so when Matthew is getting ready to tell the Jews about the Messiah, you know what the first thing he does? He gives proof. Because the things that they were waiting for were fulfilled through Jesus Christ and he qualifies to be the Messiah because here's his lineage. He's connected to Abraham. He's connected to David. So he qualifies to be the Messiah. And that's why 
I don't know how the Jews are going to claim anybody is the Messiah in the future when they can't prove their lineage. And they can't prove their lineage. Nobody's able to do that. And so, here's the question then. So why did the genealogy start with Abraham and not with Adam? Because okay? Luke, it goes all the way back to Adam. Why didn't in this one? But I believe it doesn't go back to Adam because again, this is geared specifically towards Israel and they got their start with Abraham. God started the nation. God chose a people when He chose Abraham. And so when God, cho- God, when God chose a people that the seed was going to come from, think about this. God started a nation from scratch with Abraham. Think about this. God, when God decided, this is just the character of God, how He works. When God said, I'm going to raise up a great nation that cannot be numbered for multitude, God chose an old man with no children and a barren wife. Isn't that interesting how God chose someone like that? Why does God do that? You know why? Because God is known for making something from nothing. And that's and because God is to get all the glory for everything. And so God chose and that's God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. You don't choose the young guy or the old guy with a barren wife. You choose a young guy with a young wife that's ready to have kids. But no, that's not what God did. So, verse 2, and I want us to make special note when we see anyone additional mentioned in the genealogy just besides the men. Let's pay attention to that. So it says, Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. And the brethren are mentioned because that's where the twelve tribes came from that was written to. This is where you guys come from. And Judas begat Perez and Zerah of Tamar. And Perez begat Ezram and Ezram begat Aram. And notice the first woman mentioned, Tamar. And, and I don't understand fully why God chose to name her, but she was another woman. That's a bad story. What Judah did, that was a bad story. That was it. It was bad what she did to uh, deceive Judah. Basically, it was bad what Judah did in that situation. But you know what? She ended up having twins in that story, and it mentions Pharaoh and Zerah, and that's in the story too. Where at first Zerah, his arm came out, and they put a scarlet cord around him to mark him as the firstborn. But then he drew his hand back, and then Pharaoh came. And I don't fully understand the significance of that, but I don't think the Bible put that in there for no reason. I think, again, it's one more time you kind of see the younger prevailing over the older is, I think, what we're seeing because that's just a theme throughout the Bible with Ishmael and Isaac and Esau and Jacob and so on. So, an interesting thing there that God just kind of uh, inspired Matthew to just throw in these extra details and these extra names in there. And so... Um, verse 4, And Aram begat Aminadab, and Aminadab begat Naasen, and Naasen begat Salmon, and Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab, which is Rahab the harlot. She's mentioned too. A Canaanite woman is mentioned in there. And I don't know, maybe God's mentioning these women in here too that weren't Jews just to kind of remind the Jews, hey, you know, let me tell you something about your bloodlines. You know, they're not as pure as you think they are, for one. It's because the, the reality is, you know what? Let me show you 
some non-Jews that are in the bloodline here. Let me show you some bad people in the story. But at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter because Jesus didn't really descend from Joseph. He was born of a virgin. He was the Son of God. So, I don't know, maybe he's kind of showing these flaws, you could say, in their genealogy for that reason. I don't know. Maybe it's a picture of God's grace too. The fact that God took these sinful women, Tamar, who played the harlot with her father-in-law and deceived him. You have Rahab, the harlot, but a woman who had faith and who, who believed God. So, uh, it, it just kind of some interesting things. And then notice here, and Boaz, Boo, or Booz, begat Obed of Ruth. And Obed begat Jesse. And we all know about Ruth. We talked about her the last four weeks. She was a Moabitess. A Moabite. They were a cursed people. But yet, the Messiah came through Ruth. So, uh, and, and I think, it, so a common thing too, you know, and I, I think it's interesting here, you know, in Matthew, it didn't refer to her as Rahab the harlot. Okay, she's called that uh, in Hebrews and other places. But you know, one common thing you'll notice in the New Testament that's interesting is the New Testament seems to always make Old Testament characters look better than they were. And I think that's just kind of, there's, a, there's something there because it, the Gospel is what makes us better than we actually are. The, the Gospel gives us a righteous standing. It talks about just lot. That's with the filthy conversation among the wicked. That righteous man dwelling among them. Hello, uh, I don't think Lot was very righteous. So well, what makes you think that? The law. But you know what? Faith is accounted for righteousness. Believing God is what God accounts righteousness from. So you know what? He was a just man because he was a believer. So just kind of an interesting, uh, an interesting thing when you're reading the New Testament and look, uh, looking at these characters. So verse 6, And Jesse beget David the king. And David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. This is a reference to Bathsheba. And so notice those four women that are mentioned. Tamar played the harlot. Rahab was a harlot. Ruth, she was a Moabitess. Bathsheba, she committed adultery with David. I don't know if she she might have been a Gentile herself or a, um, a Canaanite herself. She was married to Uriah the Hittite, but... He could have married a Jewish woman. I don't know that for sure. I know she had a relative that was one of David's counselors. But either way, all four of the women that are mentioned, there's a lot of negative things connected with them. And again, too, some of them were, weren't even Jewish. But I believe God did that on purpose. And so verse 7, And Solomon begat Roboam, and Roboam begat Abiah, and Abiah begat Asa, and Asa begat Josaphat, and Josaphat begat Joram, and Joram begat Ozias. And Ozias begat Jotham, and Jotham begat Achaz, and Achaz begat Ezekias, and Ezekias begat Manassas, Manassas begat Ammon, and Ammon begat Josias, and Josias begat Jeconias and his brethren about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And this is specified because this was an especially notable time in their history, but yet at the same time it was important to note because they still kept the lineage intact, even though they had gotten taken captive for 70 years. Even though Jeconias and his brethren had got taken, they kept their lineage intact. And it said, and after they were brought to Babylon, which was like a completely new era in Israel's history, Jeconias begat Salathiel, and Salathiel begat Zerubbabel, or which is Zerubbabel, which we've been, we saw him 
uh, going through the book of Ezra. He was a leader when they were rebuilding the temple and at the restoration of Israel. And Zerubbabel beget Abiad, and Abiad beget Eliakim, and Eliakim beget Azor, and Azor beget Zadok, and Zadok beget Achim, and Achim beget Eliad, and Eliad beget Eleazar, Eleazar beget Mathan, and Mathan beget Jacob, and Jacob beget Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. And so this is specifically showing the legal line to Joseph and not Mary. And why is it doing that? It's because this is showing Jesus is rightful heir to the throne of David. Jesus had a claim to the throne of David. Now, obviously, uh, you know, the Romans were in charge during that time, but, you know, had Jesus, you know, come as a conquering king during that time instead of a sacrificial lamb, you know, he could have taken a, a legal claim if he would have defeated the Romans during that time. He, he could have claimed that, Rome, that, that throne. And so they're showing this to the Jews to just show Jesus legally is qualified to be the king and to sit on the throne of David that it was prophesied that someone was going to sit on his throne again. So just kind of an important fact there. And so we'll notice this in verse 17 because I think this is really interesting too. So, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David until the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations. And from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. Now, I don't understand the significance of that, but there must be something to it. The fact that the Bible mentioned that. 14 generations from Abraham to David. That's a, a, a big deal. You know, another 14 from David to the carrying away to Babylon and another 14 from Babylon to um, to Christ. And so, uh, so then I just, I got curious. And I was like, well, what happens if you go back 14 generations from Abraham? You know what you have? You have Enoch, which is when the world started getting bad uh, and, um, you know, the sons of God started intermarrying with the daughters of men. And then if you go back, and, and Enoch was the seventh from Adam. So it's kind of interesting. You can kind of divide, if you divide by sevens, if you want to get into numerology stuff, you can probably make up something interesting about that. I, I'm not, I'm not going to do that, but it's worth mentioning because it mentioned it here, all these references to the 14 generations. So, uh, I said, well, well, let's see, what, what if we go forward from there? It doesn't matter from there on out. Okay? Genealogies cease to matter after Christ. That's something we need to get a hold of. It does not matter. But, here's an interesting thing too. If you go back in the Old Testament and you go through all those names, You'll find out some there's some names that are missing that aren't mentioned here in Matthew. And what most people believe, and I tend to agree, is that they their names were kind of removed because of sin, because of wicked things. One of them, uh, King, that I just when I get when I read his story, I just get mad. I hate this guy. Is Joash, and Joash was somebody who was a good king while the high priest Jehoiada uh, was alive. But then after Jehoiada died, he went back and even killed his son and just, Joash ended really, really bad. He's not mentioned in this genealogy, interestingly enough. And I believe there's one other one. I can't remember which one that is. But I want to show you an interesting thing too, an interesting prophecy that, again, not that Jews really care that much about what the Bible actually says, but just some, an interesting fact 
that you know they should acknowledge because there's so many things I would love if I could get one to listen to me. Just what do you do about these prophecies? Because you do realize it's literally impossible for prophecies to be fulfilled the way they are spelled out in the Bible and in the future. These things had to have already happened. There was time limits on some of these things. It can't possibly happen. But here's an interesting prophecy. In Jeremiah 22, 28, it says, Is this man Coniah, which is Jeconiah, which is referred to in these genealogies, Jeconiah and his brethren, that they were carried away to Babylon. Is this man Coniah a despised, broken idol? Is he a vessel wherein is no pleasure? Wherefore are they cast out? He and his seed and are cast into a land which they know not. O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. So notice that prophecy about Jeconiah. Write this man childless. Don't let anyone else sit on his throne. But wait a minute. That's where Jesus came from. That's where Jesus descended from. That's the line that Joseph's from. So what do we do about the, uh, about this here? Well, so remember, the last king to sit on David's throne was actually Zedekiah, who was Jeconias' uncle. Because if you go back in, in Jeremiah and you read those stories, Jeconias and his brethren, they, got, they are the ones that got taken captive in Babylon. And then they placed Zedekiah as king who was from that family, but he wasn't... Uh, he, yeah, he was Jeconiah's uncle, I believe it was. And so then later, uh, they went and they took Zedekiah and they killed him. They put out his eyes. They killed his sons in front of him. You might remember that story. But basically, when the Babylonians came through, Jeconiah was removed from being king. And it was kind of part of a curse because he was wicked. And you know what? Nobody in that line ever sat on the throne again. Israel has not had a king since Zedekiah. And Zedekiah was just kind of a was kind of a puppet king. And you know what? The next king, I believe that's going to sit on the throne of David. I believe God is going to restore the throne of David, and it's going to be Jesus. Jesus is going to want. A lot of people believe that David literally is going to sit on the throne. I think when the Bible prophesies about the David sitting on the throne, those were prophecies about the throne of David being restored is what it was. It was showing that, you know, even though the, they had been taken captive and they had lost their king uh, from that line of David, God was going to restore that line. I believe that's how the prophecy was understood then. And I believe that's how it's going to be fulfilled. And it's going to be fulfilled through Jesus Christ. He said, but wait a minute, but Jeconias' line got cursed. It got cut off. But you know what? We also see in Luke's genealogy, when it gets to David, it doesn't go David to Solomon. It goes David to Nathan. And then it goes, there's a whole separate line that it takes. And then it goes to Joseph, but I believe it was a, a reference to Mary's line, the biological line that Jesus came from. So either way, Jesus fulfilled the prophecies physically. Jesus fulfilled the prophecies legally. All these things are fulfilled. And so it's not going to be a son of Jeconias that's going to sit on the throne one of these days, but it will be a son of David that will sit on the throne. That line of David that were kings, they got cursed and they were never restored. 
and they never will be restored. Jesus, I believe, He will be the next legitimate king of Israel. So what if Israel today makes Netanyahu king or someone else king? Wouldn't that mess up the prophecy? Uh, no, because that ain't Israel. So it won't matter. Okay? They, they can call it whatever they want, but it won't matter. But anyway, verse 18. So all, these, all of these little details in here, you know, we look at those things and we don't think that much of them, but these things would have mattered very much to Jews. And these are good things for us to remember too, in case you ever actually get a Jew to pay attention to what you have to say. That, hey, these, there is absolutely no way these prophecies can be fulfilled today. They had to have been fulfilled by somebody back then. They had time limits on it. In Daniel 9, specifically, all these things had to happen within a 490 year period. They had to happen before the temple was destroyed. I mean, there were so many things that had to happen. There is no way the Messiah can be a future thing. The Messiah already came. So verse 18, it goes into the Christmas story and it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. And always remember, the virgin birth is a fundamental doctrine. If Jesus is born of man, he would be corruptible seed. Because all of all men are of corruptible seed because of Adam. And every bit of history we have seen so far has shown God choose one person after another only for them to sin and fall. And so for the promises to be fulfilled, they have to be fulfilled from somebody who's not under the curse. And that would only be Jesus who was made a curse for us and who overcame and, and was killed but overcame death, which the rest of us cannot do. So verse 19, Then Joseph, her husband being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. And this is an example of a biblical divorce where a man, he was able to divorce his wife and an espoused wife was a wife. Even though they, it was kind of like an engagement back then where they would be married and then for a period of time, typically a year, they were technically married, but they would not come together till after that year was up. And so Mary was technically his wife, but they had not come together physically yet. And so they had it was in the law that if you were espoused to a woman and then it turned out she was not a maid, she found out that there was some uncleanness in her or something like that, you were able to divorce her. That was before you had uh, had come together. And so when Joseph finds out that Mary's pregnant, he's like, "Well, I know it's not my child." So he decided he was going to put her away. And he, uh, but he was going to do it privily. And so it says, But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And you know, this shows Joseph was a great man of faith. Because, think about that. I mean, believe, okay, first off, up until this point in history, no one has ever gotten pregnant without the aid of a man. And, and since then, it's never happened again either. Okay? There are not virgin births. Okay? I'm sure people identify as uh, virgins today that are pregnant and things like that, but it doesn't count. This is the first time that has ever happened. It is the only time that has ever happened. And you know what? Joseph believed 
what the angel told him in a dream. That shows great faith right there. And, and uh, what an amazing... You know, Joseph doesn't get enough credit. Uh, Joseph deserves a lot of credit for a lot of things. I've preached a lot of messages on Joseph before. I, I think he's a great example of a father, of a stepfather. And uh, there's a lot of great things we can learn from him. And so it says in verse 21, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And sadly, many dispensationalists like Sam Gipp, for example, they believe Jesus wasn't supposed... He, he teaches Jesus wasn't supposed to be called Jesus. He was supposed to be called Emmanuel, which is just dumb. The angel said, Thou shalt call his name Jesus. And why? Why did the angel say, call his name Jesus? For he shall save his people from the Romans. Is that what it said? No. He shall save his people from their sins. And so Joseph, Sam Gipp years ago, you know, he taught that, you know, they basically, Joseph and Mary, they disobeyed the angel. They named him Jesus. You know, but it worked out good for us Gentiles because, you know, we do. We need a savior. You know, and he went into this meaning of names, nonsense and everything. But no, Israel needed saved from their sins. The Romans were never, not their problems. The Greeks were not their problem. The Babylonians and the Persians were not their problem. Sin was their problem. God told them, if you will do, if, if you'll obey my commands, if you will keep my law, I will protect you. I will bless you. I will do all these things for you. But if you don't, you're going to be cursed. God warned them over and over and over again, but Israel, they kept sinning. And so Jesus came so he could save them from their sins. That was Israel's problem. Israel had a sin problem. That was always their problem. And that was why Jesus came to save them from their sins. And let me tell you something too. We're not going to go over to Luke chapter 2. But when Jesus came to save his people from their sins, he didn't just come to save the Jews from their sins. Remember what the angel said to the shepherds? Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings. Which is the gospel, by the way, is good news or good tidings or glad tidings. I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. If that was just for the Jews, then why is it good tidings of great joy for all people? Who cares if the Jews get saved? It doesn't do anything for us. No, it was good for all people. He came to save all people that were lost. And so it says in verse 22, Now all this was done, and here's that phrase, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Now, it does say, prophetically, they were going to call his name Emmanuel. But the angel specifically said, you name him Jesus. There's a difference between you be saying, here's somebody's name, and this is something people are going to call him. Okay? Well, obviously, you know, you know, we all have names. And even for your kids, you gave them a name, but there's also things that we call them too. Okay? And sometimes we call them things that have to do with their character traits. All right? you know, one of the things, you know, and so I, for all of my kids, I've, got all, I've had nicknames for all of our kids. Right, And it typically has something to do with how they are, typically a behavior, and it's usually something negative. Right? Because you know, most kids are typically rotten. But this is Jesus. Okay, This is Jesus. And so you know what they're going to call Him? Emmanuel. You know why? Because when Jesus was with them, guess who was with them on earth? God was with them. 
because Jesus was God. So, uh, and un- so understand, um, Mary and Joseph, they did not disobey the angel. They did not disobey God in the name of Jesus. They actually obeyed Him. But let's look at this prophecy. Because I want us to get a hold of something This is very important to help us understand this phrase that it might be fulfilled. Because we're going to see that a lot as we go through the book of Matthew. And so I want us to get this burn in our brain because this is something I believe is going to help us a lot when it comes to prophecy. I know this has been helping me since I've been getting a hold of this. But go to Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 10 because this is where we see that prophecy. And I want you to notice something about this because I I am finding myself, the more I study prophecy, I'm learning to interpret prophecies uh, you know that I believe are future uh, in light of how prophecies were fulfilled in the past or how they played out in the past. And I want you to notice something here too. This is, it says in Isaiah 7.10, Moreover, the Lord spake again unto Ahaz, saying, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. And he said... Hear ye now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will ye weary my God also? Listen, God told him, ask for a sign. He should have just asked for a sign. Okay? When, the, when the prophet tells you to do something, it's best to do it. Remember that prophet that came and told a man to smite him? And then the guy, and the guy didn't do it and he cursed him and then the next guy smited him and then he went and busted his jaw or something like that. You know, it wounded him. When the prophet tells you to do something, you ought to do it. It's a very important thing. But anyway, but he's like, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to tempt God. And he said, therefore, the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, when was this prophecy fulfilled? Go ahead and answer it. You're probably going to get it right. We just read it, didn't we? It was fulfilled with Jesus. Isaiah 7.14 was fulfilled at the birth of Jesus. I mean, and this is such a clear prophecy. A virgin shall be with child. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. Now let's keep reading. Butter and honey shall he eat that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. Now, that prophecy clearly was a prophecy about something that happened in that day, probably 700 years before Jesus was born. So what's going in fact, and if you go on and then you read, you know, the land was forsaken both for kings. This was during the time of the Assyrian Empire. And, and you did. Uh, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom both lost their kings within a short period of time after that. When Jesus was born... They only had King Herod. They only had one king, and he was kind of a puppet king, by the way, who um, you know, was just kind of installed there by the Roman Empire during that time. He was a, a fake Jew. That, uh, the, a guy who claimed to be a Jew who probably was an Edomite, uh, according to history. So, kind of, so, what do we do with this? I mean, uh, this prophecy is clearly something that was showing a timeline. That without a doubt, this prophecy in Isaiah, Isaiah is basically letting Israel know that within a short period of time, the land is going to lose both of her kings. 
And did that happen? You better believe it happened. Now let me ask you this. Did a virgin conceive during that time? Did a, did a, no. I don't believe that. Now some will say, well, you know, a woman who was a virgin at that time, from the time, a woman who at this time is a virgin, but by the time she goes and, you know, she's no longer a virgin, she conceives and she bears a son, you know, within that space of time. Well, I think you can make that argument, but this is where people say dual fulfillment. Well, wait a minute. No, it can't be a dual fulfillment because if it's a dual fulfillment, that means two times a virgin conceives. A virgin only could ever conceive one time. So, again, here, here's what we've got to get a hold of when it comes to oh, when it comes to prophecies. Old Testament prophecies always had something to do with that day, but they would often too contain a prophecy for the future as well. And we shouldn't just assume when we see one part of a prophecy fulfilled that you know it, um, that it's about the future, and then. Uh, you know, then the, or the, assume the entire prophecy is about the future. Okay, so just because one part is about the future doesn't mean it's all about the future. It's important we understand that. We, we can't just assume that. Sometimes there were certain elements of that prophecy that were a foreshadowing of something to come. And there were sometimes that while those prophecies were intended for that generation, they didn't come to pass because of sin. And they and later they were fulfilled with Jesus. Now this is what I, I, I hope I can be clear and what I'm about to explain here, because when it comes to Old Testament prophecies, what we're looking at are foreshadowings or failure. I believe is what we're seeing. Because remember what Jesus said in Matthew 23: "O Jerusalem, thou that kills the prophets, how often would I have gathered thee?" But what did he say? But ye would not. There were many times, I believe, throughout the Bible where certain things were presented to Israel, but Israel always rejected. Israel always failed. God gave them opportunity many times for wonderful things, but they would often fail. So when it comes to Old Testament prophecy, we should always ask ourselves the question, what are we looking at here? Is this a foreshadowing or is it failure with Israel? And fulfillment with Christ. And, and often the answer is both. Sometimes it is a foreshadowing. But sometimes, but here's the thing. It was always going to be fulfilled through Jesus. All things were always going to be fulfilled with Jesus. And I think we need to make special note in all the places where it says that it might be fulfilled. What I believe we're seeing... Um, is, well, let, let me... I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go ahead and read these last verses. So verse 24... So then Joseph being raised from sleep did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him and took unto him his wife and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son and called his name Jesus. And so Joseph and Mary, they both deserve a great deal of credit for the fact that they had a home where the Messiah was capable of fulfilling his mission. Because there were certain things that they had to do as parents to fulfill the law. They had to go and they had to take him to the priest and offer the two turtle doves like they would do for a firstborn. They had to have him circumcised on the eighth day. He's got to do all these things to fulfill the law, but as a baby, he can't do it. His parents have to do this. And they did that. I mean, think about that. But here's the thing. When we look at the Gospel of Matthew, it is important that we see it as a repeat of Israel's history. Okay, Jesus is Israel's final opportunity 
to get things right as a nation to fulfill all the things God had promised to their fathers going all the way back to Adam. Okay? And so let me explain exactly what I believe this phrase that it might be fulfilled means. And I'm going to illustrate it with these. I'm going to use these five songbooks here to kind of do an illustration. Right? So imagine that there was a prophecy. Okay, This prophecy is not out there. But let's just imagine a prophet came here today and they gave a prophecy that the ministry of Tommy McMurtry was going to successfully remove five heresies from the IFB through epic preaching and writing of books. Alright, let's, let's just say that that was a prophecy, okay? And so let's say, and let's say in my lifetime, I did. I write books that change the mind of Baptists and causes them to remove those heresies where you just can't find them in Baptist churches anymore. Okay? And so, you know, let's say, I, and so I do. I write a book against Zionism that's just so awesome. Working on one right now that it's just gone. Okay? Nobody in the IFB preaches Zionism anymore. You can't find a Zionist Baptist church. It'd be like finding a, it'd be like find, going to a Baptist church and finding a confessional booth. Anybody ever seen a confessional booth in a Baptist church? I haven't. Okay? Thankfully, that never made it into the Baptist church, but Zionism stuck in. But one of these days, hopefully, I'm going to get rid of it. Alright? And it would be as rare as a confessional booth in a Baptist church. And then I write another book, and it doesn't. In the pre-tribulation rapture, it destroys it so bad, you just, you can't find it anymore. More of the prophecy has been fulfilled. I write another book, Dispensationalism. It's gone. No, nobody teaches dispensationalism in the Baptist church anymore. You gotta to go to some kind of weird evangelical, non-denom church to find that. I write another book, or I preach another sermon, just debunking the whole repent of sins for salvation thing. It's gone. Just like the prophet said, but I've got, there's one more left. Okay, the next one, what would it be? Calvinism. Alright? Unfortunately, there's Calvin, Baptist Calvinists out there. They exist. But let's suppose I die, before I write that book on Calvinism. I don't get that done. Maybe I made so much money off my other books, I just got satisfied and I took an extended vacation and then I died before I could finish it. I failed. I failed in doing what the prophet said that I was going to do, but it was a prophecy. It was a prophecy from the Lord. It has to be fulfilled. But then, let's suppose later, okay, later I'm gone, but then let's say Jason comes along and then Jason writes a book on, against Calvinism and destroys it. And so the reality is the prophecy was fulfilled because Jason was a part of my ministry, wasn't he? He was my son. He grew up in my home. He went to this church. And so the, the reality is where I failed in fulfilling that prophecy, Jason, who was also a part of my ministry, he came and he succeeded and he did. He wrote that book on Calvinism that was so good that you can't find Calvinism in Baptist churches anymore that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. And understand that when we go through this Old Testament, there is a bunch of stuff that Israel was told to do. Israel was supposed to be a light to the world. Israel was supposed to, they were supposed to build that temple. The Levites were supposed to do some things to be able to, to remove sins. There were many things that God called Israel to do, that God called the Levites to do, that God called the high priest to do. There was many things that were prophesied that Israel was going to accomplish that Israel, when we read this story, they never got it done. 
They never got the things done that God told them to get done. Even when God gave them all these prophecies about what they were supposed to do after they got restored to the land after the Babylonian captivity and after they rebuilt the temple, God gave them all these things to do to prepare for the Messiah and they didn't get them done. When Jesus showed up at His triumphal entry, they were not ready. They were not prepared. He wept over the city when He saw it. And the reality is, when Jesus came along from the beginning of His ministry, you know what we're going to see Him doing throughout the book of Matthew? It's like He's going back and He's like tying up all the loose ends that Israel didn't get done. All the stuff Israel didn't get done, Jesus is doing it. So we're going to find... It is it's like random things. There's a bunch of stuff in Zechariah that Jesus, we don't see Him fulfilling in His ministry, but there's just certain things like one verse here, one verse there that He does fulfill. Why? Because these were things Israel didn't get done. But Jesus did come along and get these things done, thus fulfilling the prophecies to Israel because guess where Jesus came from? Israel. Jesus took on Him the seed of Abraham. And so all of these things are fulfilled through Christ. So whenever we look at Old Testament prophecies that were clearly prophecies that were geared towards that generation and that day, but then later we see it mentioning Jesus and saying that it might be fulfilled, it's not because it was a dual prophecy. No, it's because Israel never got it done. So Jesus is getting it done. And everything that Jesus did, He did for a reason. He's doing things to fulfill the Scriptures. We even we see that mentioned so much. Even, even the book of John talks about this. I believe it's in, in the Gospel of John too. Where it was like once Jesus realized that He had done everything. Once He got to that point when He was on the cross where He had accomplished everything that needed to be done, there was still one more loose end he had to take care of. There was still one more prophecy that he had to fulfill, and that was taking vinegar. And so what did he do? He said, I thirst. Why? So they could bring him the vinegar. So he could fulfill that prophecy because these things needed to be fulfilled. And so just like, again, you know, we want to see that, we want to see that prophecy fulfilled, like the prophet said, of removing all of those heresies from the Baptist church, but I didn't get it done. And there was a bunch of things that God prophesied to Israel that Israel never got done. But you know what? Just like Jason, he came along after I left and then he went and finished up what I was supposed to finish and I didn't get done, thus fulfilling the prophecy. That's what we're going to see Jesus do as we go throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus come along and He's taken all those prophecies that were about Israel that Israel did not get done and Jesus coming along and saying, I'll, I'll take care of that. I'll do that. I, w- I will fulfill that. And so, that's why there's going to be certain elements of the prophecy that we see while we're not, not everything from the Old Testament was repeated with Jesus Christ. Maybe, you know, you could say maybe there were some things Israel actually did do. Right. And so Jesus did all this, you know, he, he filled in all the gaps everywhere they needed to be filled. And so that's why, again, when it, it, it's the same thing when it comes to our personal life. In order for us to go to heaven, we have to have righteousness. But Jesus is the author of our salvation. Jesus is the author of our righteousness. Which is why we see so much emphasis on believing on Christ. 
because he is where all things are fulfilled. He is where prophecies are fulfilled. He is where salvation comes from. It is all about His work. He gets the glory in everything. The story of the Bible is the story of Jesus Christ. And so, uh, hopefully that helps you understand a little more of that phrase that it might be fulfilled. And so, anytime you're reading an Old Testament prophecy and you're like, wait a minute, I remember when Jesus did that one verse. What about all these other things? Why didn't He do all these other things? Well, Anything that he, maybe he didn't have to because those things had already been taken care of. He's just doing the things that still needed fulfilled. And we'll see a bunch of those as we go throughout the book of Matthew. And I believe too, it's the same thing too when it comes to future prophecies. They are fulfilled through Christ, not through Israel. And so with that, let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray this message was a help and came across clear to everyone. Lord, we thank You for uh, what You have done for us. We thank You for filling, fulfilling all things uh, for us so we can be saved. And Lord, I pray You'll help us to spread that message. In Your name we pray. Amen.